Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Scott. How are you doing today, sir? I am doing as well as can be expected, my friend. How about you? I am right there with you. Again, we, uh, we're trying our best not to date ourselves because we expect these episodes to be listened to many years down the road, but we are, of course, in the middle of the global pandemic, and I guess that's all we need to talk about on that, on that yeah. subject. Yep. <laughs> so the first two episodes that we recorded were on... The Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Now, we both, well, we both unanimously recommended the first Terminator. And then we had a, you know, I think a really good discussion about Terminator 2. But I think overall, I mean, the general consensus was that we certainly still recommend that film. Now, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now we get into, I guess, what could be deemed the gray area for the Terminator franchise for a lot of people. Um, You and I have purposely not really discussed our thoughts on the next three films in the series. So uh, no time like the present. So before we get started discussing Terminator 3, The Rise of the Machines, I'll ask you the same question I asked in the last episode. Tell me about when this film started to come on your radar and what was if any, your anticipation level for the film. So it started coming on the radar, you know, when I heard they were making it. At the time, Arnold signed for it. I think it was the biggest single payday for any actor in history. I think they paid him $29.3 million or something like that. You know, in in 2002, this came out in 2003, so they'd have been shooting in in 02. Pretty substantial chunk uh, in 02. Uh, So, you know, it was kind of, it was covered in Entertainment Weekly and stuff. My my anticipation wasn't that high because, again, as we kind of talked about, I didn't love Terminator 2. And we're now, what, 12 years later uh, doing a sequel to it. The only thing that gave me some some pretty significant uh, excitement was that it was directed by Jonathan Mosto. Uh, and... I really had been a big fan of his two previous movies, Breakdown and U571. I really thought he was kind of going to be an up-and-coming major talent uh, as an action director. And so that did kind of have me a little bit excited, but I was definitely going into it as excited to watch a Jonathan Mosto movie far more than I was excited to watch a Terminator sequel. I was incredibly excited for this film to come out. The uh, Again, this goes back Back to the whole nostalgic factor we talked about in regards to Terminator 2. So I think there was a part of me that was hoping to catch that, uh, catch lightning in a bottle, if you will, for a second time with the release of this film. I was not familiar with Jonathan Mostow at the time. However, I had seen Breakdown and I had seen U571, and I think they're both really, really good films, but I hadn't been able to correlate the fact that it was the same director of those films. I remember the, you know, sort of the, the the press was really pushing this one. I remember if I had any real hesitations going to this film, it just seemed like there was, seemed to be like a, a heck of a lot of product placement ahead of time for this film, more so than anything I'd seen in recent years. The only thing I could kind of compare it to is somewhat with, with Star Wars, 
episode one was coming out. But I remember there was catalogs you could get that had just pages and pages of the merchandise that was going to be featured in uh, Terminator 3. But putting all that aside, I remember the day it came out, I got tickets for me and a few of my friends for midnight release. We had a Terminator-themed party during the day where we drank beer and watched Terminator 1, Terminator 2, went to a midnight showing. And, you know, we'll get into my thoughts on the movie, but when it was over with, I just sort of sat there a little bit stunned because A, I did not catch lightning in a bottle this time, and B, I was I was really kind of confused about what I had seen. And uh, I've seen the movie probably four or five times, including once again this morning before we recorded, so I definitely have some thoughts on it. But, you know, I, I can't really, I don't want to give, I don't want to tell exactly how I was feeling at the end of the movie because I will save that for the end. But let's just say it was not the film I was expecting. I'll leave it at that. Well, and I think that's a fair statement. You know, it again, it kind of don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it, the movie doesn't, it, it goes in some directions that, you know, if you're a very, very big Terminator 2 fan, I can understand why some of the decisions that they make in this movie might really rub you the wrong way. Now, you know, for me, I kind of like some of those decisions, and we'll talk about that more. The, the one thing I will say just is is that, you know, sort of upfront is I do think the movie does work overall. Just as a as a standard Hollywood action movie, I think it does some stuff pretty well. If you if you were to take the Terminator concept out of it, I think it's a pretty solid action movie. Let's talk about, we're going to try to stay away from going from beat by beat by beat like we have in the other films here. We're going to talk about probably some key scenes in chronological order of the film. But before we do that, you mentioned exactly what was on my mind. If you were a big fan of Terminator 2, there were two key components missing in this film for me. Actually, I guess you could say three, but the two that I was referring to would be the role of Sarah Connor and, of course, James Cameron as the writer and director. Now, I understand that Cameron, you know, they he had lost the rights in this deal and, you know, he they revert, re, reverted back to him and that's why we got Dark Fate. And we'll talk about that when we cover that film. But the fact that Linda Hamilton wasn't in the movie and it was the way they explain her character not being in there, it, it was, I guess, the proverbial slap in the face. Uh, and I can I can understand that. I, I can see that. Um, you know, she was originally supposed to be in it and she turned it down because she was supposed to die halfway through. So they had to rewrite the script with basically that that one line. It is a slap in the face, although I for me, that scene and the scene we're talking about is is the scene in the uh, the funeral, uh, the the mausoleum where, you know, John says she died of leukemia. She made it to Judgment Day. She held on to make it to Judgment Day. It's a slap in the face, except for the fact that I think the scene works. I think Nick Stahl sells that scene really well. And so for me, I found the scene moving, even though, yeah, I can absolutely see if you're a big Sarah Connor fan, which I am. But at the time, I wasn't as much of a, a big Sarah Connor fan as I am now and certainly wasn't as big of a Linda Hamilton fan. I thought the scene still worked. So it's kind of, I guess, for me, some to use a cliche, some lemonade out of lemons. Do I wish they had maybe gone a different direction? Yes, but given this is the direction we went, I thought we got the best scene we could out of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does. When I said uh, there were two, but possibly three, and that, of course... And it, I mean, you ha you cannot watch this movie without discuss or cannot discuss this movie without noticing the glaring recasting of John Connor. Uh, you have Nick Stahl uh, taking over the titular character from Edward Furlong. Now, 
I was not as up to date as to why Furlong wasn't cast in the role. Hindsight, as they say, is 2020, and now I completely understand. Um, I think that's another one of the things that really kind of took me out of the movie the first time I saw it, because I was right sort of in that age range as of Eddie Furlong, the time that when Terminator 2 came out. So it was a character that I could really clearly identify with. And I just didn't feel the same sort of weight of the world on Nick Stahl as I did on with Eddie Furlong. So what were your overall thoughts on Nick Stahl in the role of John Connor? Well, so luckily, you know, as we talked about in the last episode, Eddie Furlong, unlike you liking him, for me, Eddie Furlong is was one of the weakest parts of Terminator 2 for me. And I also happened to, going into this, already be a big Nick Stahl fan. He was in a, a movie, Mel Gibson's first directed movie called Man Without a Face. Uh, and he was he was a terrific actor in that. Uh, and he had been in a, a movie that is not one that I can really recommend to people because it's an upsetting watch called Bully. But I thought he was just absolutely fantastic. He did Bully and a movie called In the bedroom the same year and both of them were just fantastic and so i was really kind of high on the nick stall train when terminator 3 came out so to me i actually thought he did carry the weight of the world because well that it was kind of nick stall's acting style right he was kind of a newer james dean type and so i actually really liked nick stall and i think for a lot of you know, I know that I'm going to be kind of the weird one on this movie. I've talked to a lot of people, not just you, Dana, that really don't like this movie at all. And I think part of it might just be I really liked Nick Stahl and I still really like Nick Stahl. Unfortunately, he is unfortunately followed Edward Furlong in, in having some pretty significant, you know, life problems. But for me, he works it, as much as he can. And I'll talk again when we get to the end about how I, I've mentioned this before, that I think Terminator has a John Connor problem. But as much as he can, I think he really works in this movie, at least for me. You know, if I could say just a, a quick word about Nick Stahl. Uh, by the time that Terminator 3 had come out, I had yet to see uh, Bully. I didn't see that movie for about probably two years afterwards. So when I watched Bully, I had the guy from Terminator in it. So I had kind of the opposite effect. Now, having said that, that is a movie that I agree with you. It's not one that I can recommend, although I'm glad I've I'm glad I saw it, if that makes any sense. Like a perfect sense. It's, perfect sense. It's a Larry Clark film. So if you're not familiar with Larry Larry Clark, we're talking about the guy that made kids. And although it's not on that level of sort of gratuitousness, it doesn't it certainly doesn't hold back on a lot of really shocking imagery. And couple that in with the fact that it is based on a true story, which is, you know, I actually read the book, Bully, a, a true story of high school revenge. And uh, it's it's an incredibly pressing story, but it's, it's also a fascinating look at sort of the psyche of teenagers in South Florida and just sort of the, their own reality that they live in. And, and you know, I, I almost have to reverse course here and say that I, I kind of have to recommend people watch this film because it's, it's a real snapshot of what things were kind of like for teenagers in the uh, mid-90s in Florida. Yeah, and it also has, uh, again, uh, just an extra layer of tragedy because it has what I think is Brad Renfro's best performance yeah. shortly before uh, we lost him. And uh, and again, you know, 
between him and Stahl, you had what I think are two incredibly exciting up-and-coming young actors in that movie, and both of their lives kind of went off the rails uh, shortly after that movie, you know, to the point that we we no longer have Brad Renfro with us. Um, but it is a, I, I was going to say, I can't recommend it only because it's just such a thoroughly unpleasant watch, but I, I think it's the only, for me, it's the only Larry Clark movie that I, I think fully works not just as sort of exploitation, but actually works as a movie all all through. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that being said, if uh, you guys have any more questions about that, uh, about uh, that movie, just bring it up on one of our live streams. We'll go into a little more thorough discussion if need be. So we talked about Nick Stahl. Let's talk about Kristana Loken for a moment, who was cast as the Terminatrix. Uh, you had in the first Terminator, the antagonist was Arnold. In the second one, the antagonist was Robert Patrick. And in this one, we now have a female Terminator antagonist. And it's hard for me to say, how do you feel like she did in her role? Because she was very much playing a machine. But watching it this morning, I, I have to openly admit, I like her performance in this film. I, I think she's genuinely menacing. So I love Kristana Loken. I, I actually think she's uh, she's an actress that has has done some really good work and stuff. She was in Painkiller Jane. I really like her. I, I think she does as good of a job given what she had to work with. I do not think the role is, it's weird. For a role that is a, a machine, it's weird to say, I don't think her role is written as well as Robert Patrick's is. But her role's not written as well as Robert Patrick's is. Robert Patrick almost has that, a little bit of that banality of evil going for him. You know, just the way he has that sort of monotone Robert Patrick Midwestern, almost like a Midwestern newscaster voice when he talks and he's being the cop and everything. He's almost, he's he's unbelievably threatening in the way that he's non-threatening. Um, Christina Loken, the thing I don't like is, a, a, did we really need a overly sexualized female Terminator? Like a female Terminator is one thing, but did she like... Robert Patrick is dressed as a police officer. Christana Loken's wearing like red leather throughout the whole movie. It was just kind of a weird choice. I think she does a really fantastic job given everything that she has to work with. She's got some, you know, her ability to do like an icy death glare is is really, really great. I just wish they had given her as much to work with as they gave Robert Patrick. Now, do you fault that as uh, on Mostow? or just the fact that Cameron just wasn't behind the camera on that one? I think I've got to fault it on Mostow because, quite frankly, uh, I know that Mostow can give, you know, for those who haven't seen Breakdown, man, there is not a character in that movie that doesn't work. Um, and so I know Mostow can do good characters. That being said, both of his big movies are predominantly dude-centric and so I wonder if just maybe uh, he wasn't as good at knowing how to try and flesh out female characters. I think we'll get to her eventually. I think Claire Danes is is pretty great. But yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's just it is hard to know because, as you know, I'm also not a huge fan of how James Cameron does a lot of female characters. So I don't necessarily know that he would have done better. I don't know. It, it, maybe it was just that 2003 was a weird time. And because at the time when I saw it in 2003, I didn't think anything of it. I mean, I, I'm not going to 
think I'm going to blow anybody's mind here when I say Christiana Logan's an incredibly attractive woman. And so in 2003, I was just like, oh, I'm good with this. Maybe it's just I've kind of grown a little bit and I'm a lot more aware of those things than I am now or than I was then. But I don't know. It kind of rubbed me the wrong way this time. Uh, you brought up Claire Dane. So we'll just talk about her performance in here. I mean, she really is. The, I mean, if you've got Nick Stahl playing John Connor as sort of maybe the lead role, she's basically essentially the co-star of this film. I mean, it, it, it really feels like had this movie... And we'll talk about the box office performance because it was pretty solid. And, you know, the fact that they never really followed this up with a sequel, but she really, her character was really set up to continue the same journey that Nick Stahl was on. I thought Claire Danes did great in this film, and I think she's a great actress. And, I mean, obviously, all you have to do is watch Homeland to back up that statement. And, uh, again, great. She's just great job in this film. Yeah, I mean, us 90s kids... No, or, you know, we first met her on My So-Called Life, which is, you know, that and Freaks and Geeks might be the two most influential short-lived TV shows of, of all time. And, uh, and and I absolutely adore Claire Danes. I think she's terrific in almost everything she does. And if you've actually read any of the making on this, she came in literally at the last minute. She was learning her lines. Sophia Bush of One Tree Hill was originally cast. And uh, when they got on set, uh, Mostow deemed her to just be a little too young. Uh, the the age difference between her and Nick Stahl was was too obvious. And if you you know, as you know, they're they're supposed to be the same age because they made out in Mike Kripke's basement, and so it's very important that they look the same age. So they replaced her with Claire Danes at the very last minute. Danes had to like literally learn lines just before she shot them. And so knowing that backstory, I think her performance is even more impressive. She spends the first half of the movie, I think, acting reasonably, but unfortunately not being given a lot to do other than, you know, yell. Uh, but when she actually gets brought into everything that's going on, I think she's just terrific. I think she's actually the driving plot point, you know, the driving sort of character of the rest of the movie. Do you see shades of Hamilton's character from the first one in her performance? I do. Uh, I, I, I think there was that was very clearly intentional on Mostow's part, right? The idea that she's um, you've got got you've got kind of you've got Nick Stahl as John Connor who's the world weary broken down Kyle Reese type and then you've got her as sort of the the Linda Hamilton character I don't think she quite sells the transformation as well again I think one of the biggest problems with this movie is it very clearly isn't trying to replicate Terminator 2 and I'll talk about that more later but it is trying to replicate a lot of the Terminator and it does it all Good, but less. And so some of those comparisons are not well invited. Uh, but I still think she's pretty great. I, I, I like seeing her transformation by the end. And, and I think just all around, she does what I do like, too, is she does a very good job of selling a that she's not really in love with her fiance and B, that she's still clearly kind of been holding a candle for John Connor for yeah. 10 years. You know, she really does sell that as far as like there's this the line where she's like, like, look at you thinking like you've got that like bad boy thing like that still works when clearly you can see in her face that it is still working yeah. on her. <laughs> so I think she does a lot of really good like character work that way in this movie. OK, uh, another character in the film is David Andrews as uh, Claire Dane's father, uh, Lieutenant General Robert Brewster. Now, this character is important. 
Um, again, I kind of look at him sort of like the Miles Dyson type character of this film because I, I think this movie does share a lot of parallels of Terminator 2, especially in some action set pieces. And we can talk about that in just a little bit. But I'm bringing up his character to discuss essentially the question that is asked of uh, that John Connor asked the Terminator when he says, you know, this, this, you shouldn't even exist. We've stopped this. And, you know, he, the Terminator says, well, you know, this is inevitable. Judgment Day is inevitable. It's going to happen. And then it actually turns out that it's Claire Dane's father who is instrumental in starting this. So basically where I'm going with this is the idea that when Terminator 2 came out, the internet really wasn't a thing. I mean, it existed, but now it's, the kind of the aha moment for me in this film, watching it again today, was, oh, yeah, yeah, this is exactly how Skynet would take over the world. So what are your thoughts on just sort of the shift from just a single company, Cyber9, to Skynet basically becoming, taking over the entire Internet? I actually think it's it's one of the best things the movie does, because one of the things that I think is really subtle but really great, and I actually only noticed it on this rewatch, because apparently I'm dumb, uh, because it's not that subtle, I should have seen it before, is the way that none of the tech is working throughout the movie, right? Claire Danes can't ever get a signal on her phone. When they're in the gas station, the cable is out and the credit card machine's not working. And so all throughout the movie, you're getting this little sprinkle of how the virus that everybody thinks is a virus, but in reality is Skynet becoming, you know, self-actualized is is starting to spread. And, and it does make sense that, that that is the way now that we would see this type of thing, right? We wouldn't, machines taking over now wouldn't be maximum overdrive. They wouldn't take over our semis and our vending machines. They would take over our banking systems and our security systems and our friggin IP cameras. And, you know, I'm looking around at my office and I've got 17 different things in here that uh, Skynet could take over. I've got an Amazon Echo right here. And, you know, I've literally let Skynet into my home. Yes. So I actually think this movie was a little ahead of its time as far as how something like this would would actually happen and take over yeah no i i have to tell you my eyes really opened up upon this this last viewing because i was really just trying to go into it incredibly objectively as far as not you know putting the the uh, trying to take the nostalgia factor of t2 out and just kind of like you said watch it as its own movie of course the elephant in the room is for me will always be terminator 2 when trying to compare the two trying my best not to compare the two we have to talk about arnold now because when we look at arnold's career post terminator 2 you get true lies i don't have the i don't have the movies in front of me so i'm just kind of recalling from memory here you get true lies which was another james cameron film which very successful. I mean, it didn't do T2 numbers, but very successful. And I know you've got some very mixed feelings about that film. And then you see, for the first time in Arnold's career, I, I failed to mention Last Action Hero. That came out actually mm-hmm. a year before True Lies, which was a, uh, a disaster uh, when it came out, but I think has yeah. since become uh, quite the cult hit. And uh, it's actually one that I actually enjoy watching now. I just got to ask, yeah, we, we, we've got time. What are your thoughts on Last Action Hero? I think it almost works. Um, I have some affection for it because I think there's a lot of good in there. I think it almost works. I don't think it quite gets there, but it almost gets there. And so I think it's worth 
you know, if, if anybody hasn't seen it, there's no reason not to see it because the stuff that works works absolutely terrifically. Um, I, I think all the little in jokes when they're in the movie world is great. And then the way things change when Jack Slater comes into the real world, um, I will always remember. And it's not really a spoiler. There's a scene where he tries to shoot a cab, expecting it to blow up. And all you get are just bullet holes in the side of the cab. And he's completely like flummoxed by the fact that this <laughs> cab just didn't blow up you know so there's a lot in there i i don't think it quite holds together completely but i would give it an a for effort and a b minus for execution which i think means you should watch the movie okay just real quick i'm going to backtrack a little bit i want to name the movies between the terminator and terminator 2 for arnold and i'm going to do the same between terminator 2 and terminator 3 so uh after terminator we had red sonya commando raw deal Predator, The Running Man, Red Heat, Twins, Total Recall, and Kindergarten Cop. Of those movies, um, the two that I've only seen once or twice would be Red Sonja and Red Heat. So I'll defer you to defer to you on your thoughts on those two films. I like Red Sonja. He's he's a supporting character in Red Sonja. You know, he really is. There's a lot. It's been a while since I've read the backstory. He was actually supposed to be Conan in that movie, but there was some rights issues. So they made him somebody else. But he's basically Conan in it. But he's really almost a, he's in a lot of the movie, but it's still kind of a glorified cameo. I like Red Sonja. I think it's goofy fun. Um, it's certainly not a movie that I would consider, you know, in his pantheon. And, and, and of the two Schwarzenegger movies that year, you know, Commando is is much better. Red Heat is, it's not my favorite. Um, it, it's pretty great because it basically gave us McBain in The yeah. Simpsons. I mean, that's really uh, what what Red Heat is. But, uh, but I mean... You got a couple ones that didn't do great, but I mean, you just read off a list of movies. I mean, this was the height of right. of him, right? Like, this is his... Is some of the movies he made after Terminator 2 actually had bigger box office, but this is when you're really seeing the build of one of the biggest actors in the entire world. Well, let's look at those movies between Terminator 2 and Terminator 3. You have Last Action Hero, like we mentioned, True Lies. True Lies, again, being a very successful film and one that I thoroughly enjoy. Then you get Junior, which is an Ivan Reitman directed film uh, with him and Danny DeVito and Emma Thompson, where if those uh, younger listeners aren't familiar, it's the movie where Arnold becomes pregnant. And I'm not going to go into the details of how he becomes pregnant, but it's an interesting concept. I think it's an interesting concept for the movie, and it's certainly an interesting casting choice. I have tried multiple times to watch that film, and I fail to find any humor in it. I don't find it to be a very funny movie. What are your thoughts on Junior? It's been years since I watched it. I, I remember it mostly because uh, it came out when I was working at Blockbuster. It came out on video when I was working at Blockbuster. And, and so, you know, it rented like crazy. But I saw it then and I didn't like it. And I have a lot of really negative feelings because for those who've ever worked at Blockbuster, you know that back in the 90s, you, you had just had these trailer tapes that just ran on loop. So like <laughs> I have a visceral reaction to the junior trailer because I saw that thing a hundred times a day, every day. So um, it's not my favorite to say the least. Uh, the next, next one on the list that came out in 1996 
was Eraser. Uh, this was movie. This was a movie that was sort of hyped as Arnold's big return back into the big action films. You know, R-rated, directed by Chuck Russell, who by that point uh, had directed Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three. Uh, it also stars James Caan and Vanessa Williams. And this movie, I remember seeing this in the theater. This was 96. This was what I called the summer of Dana. I was 18 years old. I had moved out on my own. I was seeing three movies a week. So, of course, this was an opening day film for me. Uh, didn't work for me. I, I've revisited it a couple years ago. I I don't even want to say that I find it to be a watchable film. Uh, and I'll just, I've never been able to get past the really poor CGI alligators in the uh Central Park Zoo scene uh, halfway through the film. Uh, what are your thoughts on Eraser? There's a lot about it that I should like, um, you know, because Chuck Russell also directed between this, he directed The Mask. So this yeah. was like his big step up, right? Because The Mask was such a big hit in 94, whenever that came out. But it almost feels like a parody of you know you mentioned the bad cgi alligators i'll never forget the when he shoots one of the alligators he goes your luggage <laughs> like it, it's like it's like, it's like almost a bad parody of the one-liners in commando right which actually work really well but the ones in this one and it's also the start of when you know for those who know me you know i actually think arnold is a a pretty fantastic actor when he works within his limitations. But this was the start of when he was trying to branch out a little bit and being asked to do some things that I don't think he was capable of. I, I haven't seen this movie since probably 98. I saw it in the theaters in 96 and then I gave it a couple more times. But I remember there's a line, there's a scene where he's burning all of Vanessa Williams' identification and she says, there goes everything that I ever was. And he has to give this speech about they're just numbers on plastic who you are is in here and i it's just it's so bad he can't it's not in his wheelhouse to do something like that and uh and so i i'm not an eraser fan either I, i'm with you on this one dana then we get 1997's batman and robin uh I don't really feel like there's much that needs to be said about that one. Although, just for the record, I've never asked you your opinion of that movie. So I'll just give you, ask you to give the 30 second thoughts on Batman and Robin. So I used to hate Batman and Robin. I've actually come around on it a little bit just simply because I appreciate the Adam West Batman 60 you know, 1960s Batman vibe that it's going for. I still don't think the movie works. I think it's aged better than people give it credit for because can you imagine a movie like Batman and Robin getting released today? <laughs> like, like think of how crazy and over the top and ridiculous that movie is. And that was a almost 200 or like $125 million at the time budgeted movie. Could you imagine that would be the equivalent of what? $200 million now that movie movie getting made today so i have a little actually a little bit of affection for the movie because it is just so emblematic of an era that we don't have anymore yeah i don't have much i mean i i appreciate what you're saying there and i that, that makes sense i the the descent that i took from 89 batman down to 97's batman and robin was was interesting i didn't like Batman Returns when I first saw it. And then uh, as I've gotten a little bit older and realized the sort of the restraints that Burton was put under during the 89 Batman and, the, and how the restraints were taken off for Batman and Robin, I have a new appreciation. I mean, excuse me, for Batman Returns. I have a new appreciation for that film. I saw Batman Forever in the theater, uh, utterly disappointed. And my reaction was 
uh, doubly the same, doubly the same for Batman and Robin. So sure, and I get that. Like like I said, I've I've come around on it. But look, I I saw that at actually a preview. I got I got to go to a critic screening of Batman and Robin, and I was so hopping mad after that movie that i so i get it i get that now i'm a little different and i you know mean i like weird movies i i am i am he-man defender of crap movies <laughs> yeah. that's that's my role that i play so i've changed but uh, trust me in 1997 i uh, I uh, I was just I almost needed therapy for how much I hated Batman and Robin. <laughs> so after that, we get three more movies: we End of Days, The Sixth Day, and Collateral Damage. I've actually never seen The Sixth Day. That was a movie that, to this day, hasn't really interested me. I mean, maybe you could tell me I'm I'm I should give it a look, or maybe I shouldn't. But uh, End of Days, I thought was a, just a just a procedural, you know, supernatural horror thriller. And uh, that's not the type of Arnold I like. I like, you know, the, the action hero Arnold. So that one, it there are some, I know there are some people that really like that film. It's not really for me, but if you like it, I think that's great. Uh, Collateral Damage is a film that I've only seen once. That movie was famously pulled or its release was pushed back six months because it was set to come out right around the uh, the time of 9-11. And given that it ha- deals with sort of a, a terrorist bombing, that it was pushed back. And I think just given the culture of everything that was going on in the country at the time, it wasn't very well received. But I have I do have very fond memories of, of enjoying that film. What are your thoughts on End of Days, The Sixth Day, and Collateral Damage? So I think The Sixth Day is the best of the three. Um, it's It's not great but it's fine it's it's good it's fine it, it, it's an entertaining way to kill a couple of hours it's directed by give me just one second to pull it up if i remember right yeah it's directed by roger spottiswood who directed tomorrow never dies which is why he got this one it's got some good actors in it uh schwarzenegger gives He's playing in his wheelhouse. So of the three, I think it's the best. Collateral Damage was okay. I found it to be a bit of a letdown because it's from Andrew Davis, uh, who, for those who don't know, did Under Siege and The Fugitive. And and I was expecting more. End of Days is another one of those movies. First of all, it's directed by Peter Hyams, who I like but is as his he always is his own cinematographer and sometimes he's terrific and sometimes he underlights everything and end of days is right up at the top of his most like difficult to watch movies because everything is so dark and it's also another one of those movies where they're asking Arnie to play outside of his wheelhouse. He's got some very heavy drama scenes that he just isn't quite able to pull off. Uh, so I don't think I, I don't like I know a lot of people and, and, and actually some people that we uh, some, you know, pretty decent, good friends of ours. Uh, I, I if I'm. Not misspeaking, I think Adam Risky is actually a very big fan of End of Days. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I think he is. You know, if people like it, that is awesome for them because I think there is a lot to like in the movie, but it doesn't work for me. And then that brings us to Terminator 3, Rise of the Machine. Arnold going back to the proverbial well, if you will, from the, you know, the movie that the series that launched his career into the stratosphere. Uh, again, Terminator 2, highest grossing film of 1991. What well, you- and because the biggest thing we need to talk about is that every Every single one of these movies we just talked about was a box office disappointment. Correct. The movies between Terminator and Terminator 2, for the most part, big financial successes, you know, big crowd pleasers. Some have just become classics. The films between Terminator 2 and Terminator 3, honestly, going through this entire list, with the exception of True Lies, for me, 
not one of these is one that I'm ever like eagerly anticipating watching anytime soon. Like if I want to sit down and watch some Arnold films, you know, it's going to be the Commando, the uh, Predator, Total Recall, Last Action, not Last Action, or True Lies, Terminator Judgment Day. So in like you, you like you said, none of these movies were, re- with the exception of True Lies, were really financially successful, and some of them were just outright box office bomb. Yeah, and I mean, uh, other than True Lies, Last Action Hero is really the only one that I think even warrants continual discussion i mean uh, if you're gonna do a career overview of arnold schwarzenegger the sixth day doesn't warrant even talking about right like it's a blip in the rate like i said it's i think of the a lot of the movies it's the best one it's still just a blip it's not worth you know i'm gonna spend an hour talking about predator and 45 seconds talking about the sixth day if i'm doing a career retrospective uh so we've got a you know he's in a bit of a dry spell uh, i think would be the best way to say it yeah and so terminator 3 is the one set to be his big return i think that's how uh, we were all perceiving it and you mentioned how much he got paid for this role i mean they knew they knew the producers they knew what kind of box office draw having arnold return to that role was going to be so the question i have for you mike is looking at his performances in terminator 1 and terminator 2 how do you feel arnold did in terminator 3 and i'll i'll share my thoughts after yours so i actually and and i don't this is Dear listeners, this is something Dana and I haven't talked about, so I have no idea how he feels on this. I actually really like him in this one. Uh, One of the things that I think Jonathan Mostow does really well is try and balance the cold killing machine of Terminator with the warm, fuzzy father figure of Terminator 2 and try and blend them. So we get a Terminator that is a bit of a dick. To be honest with you, there's no better way I can really describe it, right? Like, he's sent back to protect John Connor, but he's not interested in liking John Connor. He does not give a shit whether John Connor or even to a certain extent Kate Brewster like him or are interested in getting to know him. He's kind of just a bit of an asshole for a good portion of the movie. And I really... Having watched the the first three in fairly short succession now, I really like that he is giving a what I think is a distinctly different performance here. And I, I think that's good. Now, that being said, there are some negatives. I think that some of his lines and his one liners are much like are eraser level bad. And there is one scene. I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but the bar scene at the start. Yeah, no, we, we boy. Can- is that bad boy is that cringeworthy you know the scene where he goes into the bar to get his his clothes and all of that stuff and we get a, just a god-awful racial stereotype and then we get him putting on the like glitter star elton john glasses like that is just terrible that i don't even know what anybody involved in this movie was thinking with that scene but for the most part i actually think he does a pretty great job i think the one-liners they give him aren't great but i think some of the smaller moments like when he tells john you know i killed you I was I was chosen because the machines knew that I would remind you of your father figure and therefore I killed you. I think that scene is really, really fantastic. Um, But what do you think? I have no idea what you think. Well, I'll I'll agree with you. I think that scene is fantastic. I like what you said about, you know, how Mostow was kind of blending the two. Uh, 
But for me, that's kind of where I have my discrepancy with the role is because this it, it it's made made very clear that he is a different machine. He is not the Terminator from Terminator 2. There's even a line, what do you guys come off the assembly line? And he's like, yes, basically, yes. So I think I see what I was seeing was kind of how you spelled it out with the, you know, the blending, but I don't know if it was actually earned the way that you see uh, the T-800 from Terminator 2 sort of progress and become more human-like and understanding emotions and understanding this. I feel like this Terminator, now granted, when I'm saying it out loud, maybe future John Connor already taught him these things, but I was more or less thinking that he needed to be either one way or the other, and I wasn't 100% sure that I liked the blending, which again makes sense now that you spell it out like that. I would have liked probably a much more rigid machine, or you could have a throwaway line where he says, you know, your future self is to already taught me human characteristics and human emotions, and I understand all of this. So I, I would have liked one or the other. I'm not sure I'm on board with the blend. Well, and, and it would have had to have been, sorry, just to minorly correct something, it would have had to have been future Kate. Excuse because, me, future Kate. Cruise, yes, yeah. future Kate. Um, yeah, and I... I think I like it from a performance standpoint. I, I understand what you're saying, and I don't know that I disagree with you. I, I think I like it from a performance standpoint, but not necessarily from a narrative standpoint. I, I don't know that from a narrative standpoint, because they clearly are trying to... You know, it, this movie is so funny to me because it so little of it is nostalgic. You know, the way it, it really does diverge from the themes and the plots of Terminator 2. There's so little that it's beholden to nostalgia on, but then a lot about Arnie's character is very nostalgic. You know, she'll be back and I'm back and 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 stuff like that. And, you know, and he gets his little terrible catchphrase, which is talk to the hand. That's all designed to make you remind you of Terminator 2. And so it is this weird in between. So I like the performance, but I think narratively it doesn't work as well. Yeah. And, you know, something you just said there really I'm getting a new respect for this film the more we talk about it. And I'm going to explain why. Because in 2003, that was still a time when we were not inundated with every single picture coming out being a sequel, prequel, or remake. And this movie genuinely tries to really advance the narrative. Whereas when you look at, I don't know how many movies that have come out in the past three or four years based on existing intellectual properties do nothing but fan service. I'm not going to name anyone out, name anyone in spe specifically, but you all know what I'm talking about. This movie, I think the fan service is very limited. And I agree with what you're saying about it not being beholden to the first two sequels. And man, I'm telling you, I think I'm having a breakthrough as I'm talking to you about this film. I, I really am. I really am. Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating to think about it like that, because in 2003, they just weren't doing that yet. But now right. that's all they're doing. So, right. I'm, so maybe maybe there's a part of me that's you know so 
numb to how big tentpole films are, are marketed and, and made and distributed and released and how they're done and the, the boxes that they all check off. This box, uh, this movie had a couple little boxes to check off as far as referencing the first two films, but it really does become its own movie. Well, yeah, I mean, like not to jump too far ahead, but we're not really going in any order. This is a $180 million budgeted movie that ends with a fucking nuclear annihilation. Can you even conceive of a movie doing that today? I mean, I guess to a certain extent, Infinity War did, but we all knew that was going to be undone with Endgame. Like, could you imagine a movie of that caliber, that box office, ending with the bummer ending that this movie has? That There's just no way that happens today. There is absolutely zero chance that a movie commits the way that this movie committed. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons I've always liked this movie is regardless of whether you like the decisions they make, it commits. It has a story. Mostow has a story that he wants to tell and he commits to it. And that is just not something we see you know even back in 2003 you didn't see that in 180 million dollar blockbusters there's a lot to respect even if you don't like this movie uh, which i know a lot of people don't i think there's a lot to respect about it this movie took risks at that budget level you 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 can't take risks at a 200 million dollar budget level today there's a there's a set formula in place I mean, and there, there, there are algorithms that have been built to to let these filmmakers and producers know that if you want to have, if you're going to spend 200 million, your movie better had had better do this, 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 and this, and you got to check off every one of those boxes. Otherwise, you're not getting the green light. This movie genuinely took risks, and man. This is happening in real time as we're recording, <laughs> folks. I hope you understand this. Like, this is not this is something this is not something pre-planned where I called Mike and be like, "Hey, listen, I got a newfound respect for the movie." This is actually happening in real time as we're talking about it and really looking at it. And this is what I call sort of my last Jedi moment, where after watching The Rise of Skywalker, I suddenly realized that I think The Last Jedi is a much better movie than I originally gave it, uh, you know, originally thought. So I wrote down a few of my favorites, some of the things I really like about this movie and some of the things I don't like about this movie. And then I think I've, just, I've got a list as well. All right. So, so I just yeah. kind of want to balance a couple things out here. A couple things that I really like about this movie. One, I like the fact that it's still R rated. And again, when you look at the budget for this, 185 million R rated doesn't happen anymore. Not going to happen. So I have a lot of respect for that. Uh, number two, there are a couple action set pieces in here that I really, really like. I Listen, I know it is a almost a carbon copy of the chase scene from Terminator 2, but the chase scene involving the... Uh, you know, the, the cars that the Terminatrix is controlling, the police cars and the big giant crane and Arnold on the police bike. And I, I just I, I was watching that again this morning. And, and though there are some CGI elements in some of those shots, a lot of that is done practically. And some of those are some really long single takes where you just see cars just getting flipped over from the crane. I, I really like that scene. A couple things about that. Yeah, yeah. They, they wrecked the hell out of a lot of cars on that scene. I, I'm with you. I think that scene's terrific. There was one shot that they didn't think they were going to be able to get because Mostow was worried about going over budget and Arnold cared so much about it that he actually put up 
one and a half million dollars of his own money so that they could get the shot because he thought it was so integral to the scene. I mean, that that scene is... And that's where I say, you know, even if you don't like this as a Terminator movie, this is a pretty goddamn good action movie. Like, just from an action movie standpoint, there's some pretty fantastic stuff in this movie. And so just, you know, if you're like, ah, it it pisses on Terminator 2 or whatever, fine, don't consider it a Terminator movie. Just consider it Commando 2 or something like that. But there's some really great action scenes in this. And and what I wrote down here was there is a lot of CGI in this film, but they didn't go full-on Marvel CGI with this movie. When they could do really good shots practical, they did. And I think that that needs to be applauded. A couple things I wrote down that I don't like about this movie. And and these are some, and I don't want to necessarily say they're deal breakers, but they're enough that I can't walk away from this film, you know, with that same resounding feeling that I get from the first two. And that is the really poorly placed humor in this film. And you already touched on it during that the opening scene when Arnold goes to the bar and it's ladies night and they've got a stripper on, male stripper on there. And, and, and cringeworthy is, I don't even know if that's the way to describe that scene. And I remember being in the theater and I get through the part where, you know, the guy says, talk to the hand. He grabs his hand and he says, your clothes, you know, give them to me. And he goes outside and I remember just going, taking a deep breath going, okay, that's over with. Okay. And then he pulls out, like you said, the Elton John style sunglasses and puts them on. And I remember just my head sinking down and like, just like, like leaning down into my seat, like the groans that you, the, that were audible in the theater that I was at. I just remember that. And that is borderline unforgivable, unforgivable for me in this film. And uh, again, it's just the really poorly placed humor in this one that uh, that's is really tough for me. Well, and I'm I I can't disagree with you on that. I, I especially think you know I mean we talked in the last episode about how bad the bad to the bone scene was and how badly that just takes you out of the movie. And it's like, instead of fixing that, they doubled down on it yeah. and made it even worse. Uh, I mean, it's 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 unconscionably bad. And I will admit, this time watching the movie, oof, it, took a, it took a good minute for me to, for the movie to like redeem, or to like recover from that for me. So I, I don't have any pushback on that at all that scene and and you're right i mean by and large a lot of the humor there's some good humor uh i think a lot of the once kate and john start actually talking i think they've got some some pretty charming flirty you know humorous dialogue between the two of them that works i think as characters they really work nicely together but yeah a lot of the the one-liners you know and and like the tx increasing the size of her boobs when the cop comes over like just there's some just really clunky humor in this that that doesn't work at all i agree another scene that i wrote down that disappointed even though okay take terminator 2 out of the equation this is a really kind of cool scene but when you've got sort of the the elephant in the room which is the T2 is exists and it's out there. And that's the scene when they break out of the mausoleum and he's got that big, big machine gun or, you know, massive machine gun, you know, strapped on. He's carrying the coffin and he's shooting at the cop cars. I think that's a great scene. Unfortunately, it just it pales in comparison to the scene in Terminator 2 with Cyberdyne with the minigun. And, you know, it's just to me, that was it, it just didn't work on that level. But a scene by itself, I think it's pretty good. 
Well, so one thing that's really interesting when I was doing some, because I actually, you know, Terminator is amazing. Uh, Terminator 2 is, in my opinion, very good and most people's amazing. This one, I think, is just fascinating. And so I did a lot more research on this movie than I had on the other two. And uh, and it's fascinating because it's so good and so bad in a lot of ways at the same time. Originally, in the original script, because again, Mostow was trying to show a much colder Terminator because Kate didn't have the affection when she reprogrammed it. She literally just reprogrammed it to protect them. He was actually supposed to kill people in that scene. And uh, they went back later, essentially in post and tweaked it because they were afraid it would test bad because of people's affection for the Terminator from Terminator 2. And I almost think, you know, we talked a little bit about how you wanted the more robotic Terminator or the more warm Terminator. I think that is part of the problem with that, right? Is they really tried to hedge their bets. It, it might have been a much more interesting scene if he isn't being uh, so concerned about not killing people, right? Like, like that's something that I think, I don't know that that would have worked better, but it would have at least distinguished it and made it not just such a pale copy of the scene in Terminator 2. Oh, and, and if that had been the way that it was actually, if that's how it actually played out, oh my, yeah, we're, we'd be talking about a different movie altogether. Yeah. Like, we really would. And that's a, that would have been, I think, if you have a Terminator like the first one, but he has just been programmed just to protect those two and nobody else. That's a that's a completely different movie, and that's a movie I would definitely want to see. I would yeah. definitely want to see that. Uh, one other part in that that I wrote down that I liked. Look, I like the cameo cameo by Earl Bowen as Doctor Silverman. I think that's just a fun cameo, and it's because you're always left with that lingering question from Terminator Two, like, "Well, I guess Sarah proved that these things really exist." And he, he does this great line about you, you know, you see things that you that you you couldn't imagine, and you know, it takes you years to get over them, and you realize that he's literally suffering some PTSD just talking about it. And I just think that yeah. was a great scene. Well, and it's the one bit of nostalgia that actually does work in the movie right like it's the one bit of fan service that actually does work because he's such a slimy smarmy piece of shit anyway so it's like to see him brought down to that level and then yeah the way he just runs away i think that actually works really well uh one other thing that i wrote down here is it was kind of akin to what you said last time on part two of this series where you talked about sort of the the big chase through the L.A. River being the the dominant set piece in the movie. Uh, I believe uh, the, the chase through the streets of Los Angeles to be the dominant set piece in this movie. And so I, again, I would have preferred probably a more climactic ending than what we got. But uh, no, I'm not talking about sort of the, the, the prologue, of, you know, when the, the attack happens, but just the sort of the final confrontation. It just I think it just sort of paled in comparison to just how dynamic and over the top that car chase scene was. Yeah, I agree. I don't think the movie quite ever recovers from that. I think the, the climax does a lot. Of, you know, and I'll talk in my list of good and bad. I'll talk about the actual ending. But I think the climax does some really interesting stuff with the particle accelerator. I think it's a great scene when the TX is like 
melting and being pulled into the particle accelerator. But when they actually get to Crystal Tower or whatever it's called, that is a bit of a letdown. You know, I mean, it is just we, of course, get Arnie saying you're terminated. I think it's disappointing that he doesn't say you're terminated. Fucker. I said the exact same thing when I was watching. I said, oh, what a missed opportunity. Yeah. Why would you not do that if you're already going to reference back to that line? You know, it, it it. X-Men Days of Future Past does that because uh, not to go off on a tangent, but in X-Men First Class, they try and recruit Wolverine and he says, uh, go fuck yourself. And then in X-Men Days of Future Past, uh, Charles Xavier tries to like throw that back in his face, but he says, fuck off instead. And it's like, dude, if you're going to reference the line, get the line. What do you do? Like, how lazy are you that you're not getting the line actually right? And this was kind of the same thing for me, because I'm just like, if you're going to say you're terminated, you got to say you're terminated fucker. Yeah. Like that is such a great line in the original one. Why are you? And you're already R rated. I guess I could understand it if you were PG 13, but you're already R rated. Why are you not doing it right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. No, good point. So one of the good things, I think maybe the best thing, I can't believe this movie's only an hour and 48 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot. <laughs> like I was... that is mind blowing to me. I was trying when I was, I, cause I had started watching it last night and then got distracted and I said, all right, well, I'll just watch it this morning. And so when I woke up, I'm sitting outside, I'm having my coffee and I'm trying to be mindful of what time you and I are recording. I said, oh, geez, you know, I, I got, I got to finish watching this movie. And I, I, pulled it up on netflix by the way available on netflix right now everybody so uh and i looked and i i said oh this isn't two and a half hours all right well i'm good i'm good i got plenty of time to watch this we ran into that friday night when we were watching it because kelsey loves popcorn and she's got a great homemade popcorn recipe and so we make movies and a lot of times or we watch movies and a lot of times we'll stop halfway through and she'll go make popcorn for like the big third act right and so she asked me to pause it when they're basically coming they're in the particle accelerator right she's like i'm gonna go make popcorn i'm like there's like nine minutes left in the movie. She's like, I thought we were only like halfway through. I'm like, nah, this thing moves. Like, I think it I think it starts a little slow. I don't think it starts off as efficiently as Terminator and Terminator 2. But once it gets going, it is almost over before you know it. Like, I, I cannot believe in this era of two and a half hours is standard for a big blockbuster that this thing is an hour and 48. You know, and eight of those minutes are credits. Yeah. So you're literally getting a hundred minute movie that just blows my mind yeah absolutely what else did you write down so i really like uh, this is a bad i really like marco beltrami as a composer i was very disappointed about the very generic action score that he created for this you know you and i spent a lot of time talking about how great the brad fidel scores for the first two movies are and i I know Marco Beltrami can do fantastic scores, but this was such a generic, boring, Hans Zimmer light, run-of-the-mill action score. I thought that was very disappointing in this case. I that if if I could reference one part, and I agree with what you're saying there because I I've seen the movie multiple times. I can't even picture the theme for this particular movie. Uh, I don't even know that that whole chase scene during the, the the big car chase scene. There are swaths of that where there is no music playing at all. You go back to the chase scene in Terminator Two, and it is just pulse driving intensity 
with the music. And I think that was another missed opportunity. Like there was a good four or five minutes where there was no music playing. I was watching it this morning going, you know, this would really heighten things up if there was sort of like, you know, this driving music going behind it. Yeah, it's a really interesting, it's a very 2003 movie score. There's just no identity to it. No, um, no anything, Um, which I think is, is disappointing because when you've already got that fantastic theme and somebody's already written it for you why do you yeah. not just you know we don't even get the terminator theme no. until the end the credit end. yeah yeah like it, it's i just i think that was a bad miscalculation so i think for me the biggest thing that i like about this movie uh and this is going to be a, a bit of a more like macro view of it is so terminator 2 ends with the whole idea of no fate but what we make and we prevent a judgment day. Now, if you're going to make a sequel to that movie, you have got to do something different. And so I love and I have always loved that this movie commits to the other idea of time travel, which is and I always use an episode of one of my favorite shows, Farscape, for this, which is time is like a river. It can bulge out and it can narrow and you can change things kind of in the periphery, but it always flows in the same direction and certain things will always happen. And so I love that this movie commits to the idea that Judgment Day is inevitable. I love that John is constantly pointing out like, oh, had Terminator 2 not happened, I would have met Kate. We would have gotten together in Mike Kripke's basement. I would have met her dad a lot sooner. And and that's how Judgment Day would have happened earlier. But because we blew up Cyberdyne, I'm now meeting Kate 10 years later. I'm meeting her dad 10. All these things are happening 10 years later. And I really like the way Nick Stahl plays that, where he's starting to realize that there that the idea of no fate but what we make actually isn't true. Now, I get really big Terminator 2 fans, I really get why they would feel like that kind of pisses on the whole plot, theme, everything of that movie. But if you're gonna make a sequel to Terminator 2, I think this is the best way. You've got to make it so that Judgment Day is inevitable. That John Connor is destined to be the savior of mankind. That is his destiny, no matter what. The drawback is that means the Christ metaphors go way over the top in this movie. I mean, wow, are the Christ metaphors over the top. Yeah. But I think, again, if you're gonna try and make a sequel to Terminator, and this is why I you know, not to spoil things. I still think this is the best sequel. I don't think it's a perfect movie and I think it it's flawed in a lot of ways, but I like that they committed to going that direction. I've been rambling. What what do you no, think about that? No, no. I, I, my opinion of this film has changed in real time since we've been recording, which I can't say has ever happened in the history of any discussions that you and I have ever had about any movies. You know, I think we're both pretty much, set, not I want to say set in our ways, but understand the way we feel about particular types of films. And here I am having moments going, well, no, that's right. That's absolutely correct. And I, and the metaphor you gave of, you know, the river and <laughs> like, that's, that's right. I mean, no matter what happens, you can postpone it, but it's inevitable. And again, applaud the filmmaker and the writers for going this direction because you're, you're not getting away with that today. And I'm just, I just got a lot, of, I have a lot of respect for that. So no, I, I have to agree with you on that one. And that's, you know, the two other, the only two other things I, I really have are are just uh, a couple of other scenes that I think are really terrific character work. You know, the scene where 
John finds out that he dies. The Terminator tells him that he dies in the future. And the way Nick Stahl just goes, well, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think he really sells that. And I really love the scene where he's trying to convince the Terminator that they need to go save Kate's father. And the Terminator's refusing. And he pulls out the gun and, and, and literally threatens to kill himself. And is like, savior of mankind, that's bullshit. I can end this all right here. I just think that is such a, a powerful scene and the last one is the end when they're in the bunker and kate says you know they realize that her father has sent them there and the terminator has sent them there to live because they can't stop judgment day and kate actually says you know we could just let the bomb go but then you get the the guys on the cb saying hey is anybody out there i just i think the ending of this movie for the ending that they went with is so moving and powerful and unbelievably well done i can understand if people don't like the ending but i think it's incredibly well done all right so on that note i will ask you mike for the listeners out there would you recommend terminator 3 rise of the machines I do. I think it's fascinating. I think there's a lot going on in this movie. I I, I understand people who don't like it. I really do. I, 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 I don't begrudge them that. This isn't one of those movies where I'm like, I'm the only sane man. But I really think if people can, as you've kind of done in this discussion, if you can step away from your feelings of Terminator 2 and just take the movie a bit on its own, it's flawed. It's not perfect, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Interesting stuff that I don't think we get in the other sequels. And, you know, and I again, we'll we'll get into those as we go on. But I, I, I just think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in this movie. What about you? Would you recommend it? Uh, yes, I would. And if you would have asked me yesterday if it was going to be on my recommendation list, I think my answer would have been uh, no. But having watched it today with the, uh, you know, really trying to objectively distance my thoughts of the other two films out of there, I found myself a one couple points here. Number one, I found this to be a very watchable movie. And I mean that in the sense of it comes in, like I said, 140 minutes, basically. The pace of the film is actually surprisingly, uh, you know, quick. Uh, you're, I'll agree with you. The, the beginning's a little clunky, a little slow, but it, it gets going. Uh, and I just found myself, even though I'd seen the movie, I found myself still very engaged with what was happening on screen. And I can get disconnected from movies that I've seen several, several times, especially ones that in my mind, I deem ones that I don't really like. It's like I can just, they become a distraction in, you know, something that's on the TV if I'm doing something else. But I was watching this with no distractions, just watching it with some coffee this morning and finding myself really engaged in this film, more engaged than I can recall being uh, the last few times that I've seen it. And then obviously talking to you and sort of unpacking this film in a way that I haven't done in the past and understanding uh, all the different factors we've laid out, you know, the, the, the budget, the risks that they took, you know, the things that they attempted. Now, did everything work? No, no, uh, I'm going to agree with you. I think this movie is flawed, especially in a couple parts, almost to the point where it took me out of the film for a while and I had to get back in it, much like it happened with you. But judging it 
as its own movie, it's a very strong recommend. Judging it as a Terminator sequel, it is still a recommend because it does something that the other Terminator sequels don't do, and that is it truly tries to advance the, the narrative forward without hitting you over the head with uh, fan service or the nostalgia factor. So yes, I will be recommending this movie. I did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah, neither did I. Neither did I. Because, uh, you know, because I remember last year we had a text conversation yeah. about this movie. And, uh, and uh, but I, I, I'm glad. I, I mean, that's why I like that we're doing this series, you know, because I'm hoping that maybe, you know, the next one we're going to do is Salvation. And I know there are some people that can appreciate Salvation. I'm hoping that somebody, you know, us talking about it, maybe I'll find more to appreciate in that movie as well. You know, I mean, that's why it's fun to break these movies down and analyze them because, you know, I just, I came around on Terminator 2. I liked it more this time watching it with, you know, to talk to you about it than I ever have in my life. And so that's that's a big thing. That's why it's fun to do this. And I, I if there's a lesson to be learned here, I want people to know that it's okay to change your mind on things. It's okay to, you know, if you if you put out to the world that you you're not a fan of something or you love something and then, you know, as time goes on and you maybe look at things from a different perspective and a different angle, because you've put it out there already, it's okay to say, you know what? I've changed my mind. I think differently about this now. And it's perfect. It's okay to do that. Perfect example from my life. Uh, so our our friend Patrick Bromley had his birthday uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, we did a Twitter film festival for him, you know, and, and we all tweeted each other. And I have long been on record as not only disliking Avatar, pretty much hating Avatar. Man, I did a complete 180 this time. I don't know why. I don't know if it was watching it with Kelsey. I don't know if it was tweeting along with a bunch of F this movie people, but I did a complete 180 on Avatar. I enjoyed the hell out of that movie, and I am not too proud to admit that. I have changed my mind on that movie. I enjoyed the hell out of that movie. Awesome. You know, it's okay. Yeah. It's fine. We can do that. Our tastes change. Our opinions change. I still think Teen Wolf is a fun movie. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> and on that note, if people want to follow you on social media, how can they do that? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Hibachi Justice. Um, and if you follow along, if you followed along with our last live stream, you you found out the origin of that uh, that name. Um, I'm not going to repeat it here, but you know, go to my YouTube channel. You can rewatch the live stream and find that. I'm also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you can follow along with all the movies that I rate and find our 20th Century Movie Club list um, and all the movies we've recommended on that, which. You know, again, not to date when this podcast airs, but if most of you are stuck at home, it's a good time to catch up on a lot of those movies we recommend. There are 25 episodes of the 20th Century Movie Club. Uh, 24 of them are movie recommendations. One of them is just a, an episode where we we sort of catch up on the ones that we've missed. Uh, and and for those, I know a couple of people have reached out to me already and asked, when are we you know going to restart that series? When we're done with this Terminator franchise, you know, we want to take a little bit of a break from that. We love doing it. We love having the special guests on there, but this is something that him 
him and I, that Mike and I have been wanting to do for a while. And I, I know I'm having a great time talking Terminator films with you. And, and I, we've been getting a lot of really good feedback on these episodes that we've been doing. So we are going to see this thing through to the end and then we will get back to the 20th Century Movie Club. So if you want to follow this podcast on social media, you can do so on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow me on Twitter at Dana Buckler. I'm also on Instagram at The Real Dana Buckler. The show is on Instagram at The Dana Buckler Show. Uh, there's a website, thedanabucklershow.com, and you can always email the show with questions or comments at thedanabucklershow at gmail.com. So, Mike, we're three down, three to go. Yep. And unfortunately, I, I feel like it's probably gonna be a bit rougher but i you know i mean i don't know i could be wrong my my opinions could change on stuff well i'm gonna say a couple things uh salvation i saw in the theater genesis i saw in the theater dark fate i did not see in the theater genesis i've only seen one time me too the other terminator films no excuse me genesis and dark fate are both movies i've only seen one time salvation i've seen multiple times the first three terminator films i've seen multiple times but that should speak to the fact that i've only seen genesis one time and that movie came out five years ago about what my preconceived thoughts on the on the film are and that is that yeah i don't want to say anything more than that but I am looking forward to watching it again for this retrospective. I agree. And and again, I think, you know, the thing that softens the blow for a lot of these, and I'll just, I'll put this out there now. We always have Arnie. And he's never been bad in a Terminator movie. The five of the six movies he's been in, I don't think he's ever been bad. And so that always at least softens the the hurt from from some of them. I agree. All right. So, Mike, thank you as always. And we'll be talking really soon. See you, buddy. And uh, my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.